Good morning. We're in John chapter 6 of the, and, and we're in the unfolding of miracles that Jesus is doing in this part of the Gospel of John. In this part, he has done, in this chapter, he has done first the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which was really, as we've seen, more like 10 to 20,000, because the 5,000 figure is just the, the men. It doesn't include the women and the children. He supernaturally fed them with having, having taken five loaves of bread and two fish <clears throat> that a child gave him, and then he supernaturally multiplied those to feed thousands with 12 baskets of leftovers. He also walked on water, as we have seen in chapter 6. He walked on water, and he controlled the storm. He supernaturally moved a boat full of passengers from the middle of the lake to the shoreline, roughly three to four miles. He saw them miles away in the middle of a storm in darkness. We saw that that miracle of him walking on water, he also made Peter walk on water, who was in the boat. So we saw that that miracle was a five-part miracle. But that miracle was a private miracle. It was only for the disciples. The crowd didn't see that one. And so last time, we saw many people flocking to Jesus. They're flocking to him for all the wrong reasons, but they're flocking to him. They're flocking to him because he's very, very popular. The crowd that he's having a conversation with, and we began the conversation last time, is the crowd that saw him feed the, let's call it, ten to 20,000. And it's additional people as well. His miracles have made him very popular. Everybody knows about the supernatural, spectacular things that he's doing. And so the crowd makes their way. He, he did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, 10 to 20,000, on the northeast coast of the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a freshwater lake, near the town of Bethsaida. He made his way to the other side of the lake, to the northwest side of the lake, to the town of Capernaum. Capernaum is his home base. And so a group in boats came from Bethsaida, the area of Bethsaida, over to Capernaum, and then another group from Tiberias we saw last time. Tiberias, which is also on the coast of the lake, made their way to Capernaum. Everybody's making their way to Jesus. And many in this crowd are the people who saw the feeding and participated in the feeding of the ten to 20,000. They actually ate the food those in this crowd and so last time Jesus they approached him and Jesus corrected them because they approached him and they located Jesus really because they wanted more bread they just they were hungry again and they wanted more food and Jesus says you misunderstand you misunderstand who I am I'm not a cosmic bread maker I'm not your meal ticket I fed you physically to whet your appetite spiritually because that's ultimately what Jesus is pointing them to is to who he is spiritually. In light of the feeding of the 5,000, the people think of Moses, how Moses brought down manna from heaven. It was really God who was using his agent, Moses, to bring down manna. You remember manna. Manna is literally in the Hebrew, manna means... What is it? That's what the people said, the Israelites said in the wilderness when there's manna on the ground, when there are flakes on the ground, and they look at it and they say, what is it? That's manna. They come out and they say, manna. What is it? And so it was, it was bread. It was like, like a wafer almost. And when you, when you studied in the, in the Hebrew text, and it was sweet. The people think of manna when they think of Jesus supernaturally providing food for the 10 to 20,000. And so they think of Moses. Moses is on their mind. In verse 31, they said to Jesus, in verse 31 of chapter 6, they said to Jesus, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Then Jesus corrects them and says, You are mistaken. Look at verse 32. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave, who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the bread out of heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. 
What Jesus was saying is, you're wrong. You're wrong. It wasn't Moses who gave you manna. It was God who gave you manna. Moses was merely God's agent, and now God gives you the true bread, which comes from heaven. Verse 32 and verse 33 say he gives. It's present tense. This is happening now, Jesus says, when he speaks before the crowd. We're not talking about 1,500 years earlier with Moses. Stop talking about Moses. I'm here. I'm the one who gave the manna to Moses, is Jesus' point. And he will unpack that as our verses go on. Let's start with verse 34. That was just by way of review from what we saw last time. Verse 34 of chapter 6 reads like this. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Always give us this bread. They say, Lord. What is Lord? Lord is the Greek word kurios. Kurios can mean sir, it can mean master, or it can mean God. The way that the apostles use kurios, the Lord Jesus Christ, God, Jesus, Messiah. That's why they use a trifecta. That's why the apostles use a trifecta. Lord, Jesus, Christ. Baked into that trifecta, those three words, is God, Jesus, Messiah. Christ is just the English translation of the English transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. So Christ means Messiah. Kurias, the way the apostles use Kurias, is God. That's not how this crowd is using Kurias. When they say kurias with respect to Jesus, it's kind of a term of respect. It's like a sir. And so the crowd understands that Jesus is offering a special kind of bread, but they misunderstand the nature of the bread. They think it's some kind of magic bread, and so they want some of it. They say, give us this bread always. All the time we want that kind of bread. This kind of bread that you're talking about from heaven that sounds super interesting, super neat. We want that kind of bread all the time, Jesus. Yeah, give us some of that. They think, Jesus is speaking spiritually, they think physically, just like the woman at the well in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. When Jesus offers living water, she says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw The woman thought, oh, yeah, 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 I want some of that living water. I don't want to have to keep coming back to the well. I mean, this is work. It's difficult. She, Jesus was speaking of, when he said living water, he's speaking of the living water of eternal life. Spiritually, he's speaking, she thinks physically, the crowd here. When Jesus speaks of the bread that comes down from heaven, he's speaking spiritually. They think he's speaking physically. And so they say, yeah, 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 we'll take some of that magic bread. They know he's talking about special bread, They just don't understand the special nature of the bread. So Jesus explains more. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. This is the first of the seven I am statements in the book of John. They're only found in this gospel, in the gospel of John. I am the bread of life, statement number one. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Each of these are the Greek construction ego emi. Ego emi. And when, it's the construction of I am, translated in the, in the English, I am. And when John uses that Greek construction, he, he's pointing the people, he's pointing the reader, especially the Jewish reader, even though this gospel is primarily geared towards Gentiles, they're Jewish readers as well. He's pointing the reader to the name of God. To the name of God, the most important Name, the most important word, the most important concept, the most important doctrine found anywhere in the Scripture is the name of God because it is pregnant with meaning, with revelation of who He is. Remember when Moses is standing, he's shepherding 
the sheep. Remember, Moses was raised in, in, um, in Pharaoh's house. Great luxury, great privilege, educated, refined. And then he murders the, the, the Egyptian slave master who was beating a, a, a Jew. And then he has to leave. And he lives in the land of Midian for 40 years. And he's standing, he's, he's shepherding, shepherding animals, shepherding sheep. And he's standing before a bush and the bush is on fire, but the bush isn't consumed. It's not burned up, but it keeps burning. And out from the bush comes a voice. And it says, take off your sandals. Because you are standing on holy ground. It's God himself who is speaking through the bush. And God tells Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you tell Pharaoh that my people have been there for 400 years. It's time for them to leave. They're going to depart. And you go to the Israelites and you tell them it's time to go. And Moses, who is nervous, I mean, he hadn't been there for 40 years. They don't know Moses. He says, who do I tell them sent me? What is your name? And we read in the Hebrew these powerful words, a yay, a share, a yay. You tell them that I am that I am. You squeeze me? I am who I am. Is a yay, a share, a yay. You tell them that I am sent you. You tell the leaders of Israel that I am sent you. They'll understand. Because the name I am, which is the one of the ancient names of God, reveals the eternality, the foreverness of God. This is what the apostle is pointing us to every time he gives us one of these seven ego emi, one of these seven I am claims. Jesus' I am claim is a clear claim to deity. And the Israelites knew it. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And what does the next verse say in John 8, 59? They picked up stones to throw at him. They knew exactly what it meant. And so they tried to kill him because they understood he was claiming the name of God for himself. Great blasphemy if he wasn't in fact God. But he was God. And so this is a claim to deity, to deity that Jesus is making here. Actually, there's a, there's a parallelism in this verse, in verse 35. It's a theological parallelism. Look at this language. It says, he who comes to me will, if you're reading from the NASB, it says not, will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. It's the Greek construction, u may. And this particular construction, there's no the, the ume with the, the aorist subjunctive, or we've got an indicative here as well. The way this Greek construction works is there's no stronger negative that can be used. So if you're reading from a New King James or from an NET, it won't say not hunger. It'll say never hunger. My point is it's, it's a parallelism. I think the better way to translate this is the way the New King James and the NET translates it as a never. It's never hunger, never thirst, never, never. Now, in English, right, your grammar teacher would say, don't use double negatives. No, 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 no. Don't use a double negative. You're not supposed to do that. Well, in Greek, they love double negatives. They love, and that's what this is. U is a no. May is a no. No, no. My point is, I think that the, the better way to translate this is those who come to me will never hunger and those who believe in me will never thirst. What Jesus is doing is he's equating two things. He's saying coming to me is the same thing as believing in me. They're one and the same. He's just describing trust in him in two different ways. That'll be important in a little bit. Jesus taught this concept of the, the parallelism between coming to him and believing in him. He taught that earlier in the book, or he, he uses, he equates these two things 
earlier in the book, in John chapter 3, verse 18, we read this. He who believes in him, these are Jesus' words. He who believes in him, in Jesus, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For everyone who does, not, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. The light is another way to refer to Jesus. Remember in the prologue in, in, in chapter 1, the apostle refers to Jesus as the light of the world. So here in John chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus shifts. Instead of believing in him, he's saying coming to him and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, verse 21. But he who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The point of chapter 6, verse 35, is that those who come to Jesus are the same as those who believe in him. They will never hunger. They will never thirst. It's all about spiritual satisfaction, not literal food, not literal water. Keep reading in verse 36. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. The people saw Jesus. They saw him as a miracle worker. They saw him as a potential political leader who would get rid of the Romans. They were under the oppression of the Romans. But they didn't see him as the biblical Messiah, the one who would give them access to heaven, the one who would give them access to God. They didn't see him as God in the flesh, so they didn't believe in him. Remember, when you see in the Scripture, when someone says, do you believe in Jesus? That word, that concept of belief, we've kind of lost it. It doesn't mean, yeah, I believe there was a man named Jesus. That's not what believe in Jesus means. That's not how the, the gospel writers use it. That's not how Jesus use it, uses it. It's pistuo in the Greek, which means to trust in, to rely upon, to have faith in. And so the people didn't trust in Jesus, rely upon him, have faith in him, believe in him, because they saw him, not who he was, not as he was. They saw him as a a miracle worker or a potential political leader, but not as the one, the only one who gives them access to God. Then in the next few verses, Jesus opens up the vastness of theology. In the next few verses, Jesus speaks of deep, deep theology about salvation. And he will deal with doctrines like predestination and free will. These are controversial doctrines. These are controversial topics, predestination and free will. Often theologians go to one extreme or the other. There's the old story that some of you are familiar with, the old story of the, of the theologians who are debating the tension between predestination and free will, this group of theologians, and the debate gets so hot that they separate. And one goes on one side and the other the other side. The one goes to the predestination. They make a predestination group and they make a free will group. And there's the young theologian who really isn't sure which group he's going to go to, and so he goes over to the predestination group. And they say, who sent you here? And he says, no one. I chose to be here. And they say, you're not welcome. You're not welcome. You need to go to the free will group. And so he goes to the free will group, and they say, when did you decide to come here? And he says, I was sent here. You're not welcome. You're not not welcome here. It's this idea that predestination or election or sovereignty somehow obliterates free will or that free will somehow lessens predestination or election or sovereignty. The scripture teaches both the predestination of the believer, the election, God's election of the believer, God's sovereignty, God's foreknowledge, and it also teaches free will, both And the Scripture teaches it in balance. Now, some people use the term volition. I'm okay with volition. I I prefer the term free will because 
the concept of the will is what the scripture uses. And so Jesus is in a few verses that we're going to read here in a moment. Jesus opens the door to this vast theology about predestination, foreknowledge, election, and free will. The scripture teaches all of those things, and they teach and the scripture teaches it in balance. If we exclude free will, then we'll think that God forces us to believe. We'll take evangelism lightly. What do I need to tell anybody about Jesus for? Because what will be, will be. Everything's all predetermined if we exclude free will. God is sovereign, and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. That's not the way the Scripture teaches it. And on the other hand, if we exclude sovereignty, then we'll think that we're in charge of salvation. You are not. God saves you. You don't save yourself. Now, He uses your faith to save you. But He saves you. Don't flatter yourself. God exclusively is in charge of salvation. Although He uses your faith to do it. You see, even in salvation, even in that statement I just made, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, both, coexist this is what jesus is about to teach us if you exclude sovereignty and you say free will trumps sovereignty then you're forced to the unescapable conclusion that we're in charge of our salvation and we're in charge even to maintain our salvation so you then are in danger. Ooh, 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 ooh. You might lose your salvation. Careful. If you exclude sovereignty and you elevate free will higher than sovereignty. The Scripture teaches both the sovereignty of God, election, predestination, for, foreknowledge, and free will. Both intention. As a friend of mine once said, live in the tension. Don't go over here, don't go over there, because there are landmines over there and the landmines over there. Live in the tension. This is what we're about to see in these verses. Let's start with verse 37. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. This is a treasure trove of theology. Jesus makes five declarations here. Number one, the Father has given some, but not all, to Jesus. Number two, it is an absolute certainty that those whom the Father has given to Jesus will believe. Number three, yet they have their own responsibility to believe. Number four, Jesus has come to do the Father's will. And number five, the Father's will is that Jesus preserve those whom the Father has given to him, that he raise them on the last day, and that he give them eternal life. These are deep deep theological truths and before we dive into the deep ocean which we'll do in a moment let me just emphasize the significance of these truths all these theological truths point to you now it's true God is doing all of this but what these theological truths reveal is how valuable you are to God they reveal how much you matter to God. You're the prize. Now, the Scripture doesn't say that to, to, to blow sunshine our way, right? To, to kiss up to us at all. I mean, the Scripture describes us as the enemies of God. So this is not a kiss-up process. But the Scripture does describe us as the prize, the gift from God the Father to God the Son. 
I mean, that's what Jesus says, right? In verse 37, all that the Father gives me. In verse 39, all that he has given me. It's the Greek word didomi. One, verse 37 is in the present tense. Verse 39 is in the perfect tense. We studied the perfect tense before. In the Greek, the perfect tense, perfect tense, it's one of the past tenses. So it's something that has happened in the past, but it has ongoing results. What Jesus is saying is that the gift was given from the Father to the Son a long time ago, back in eternity past. The gift of you from the Father to the Son. The reason I emphasize the gift, the prize, the giving from the Father to the Son is because we live in a world where human life, especially in our culture, is cheap. It's cheap. That's why people are abused wholesale, murdered wholesale. Babies in the womb, cheap, murdered, slaughtered. Because we're told that we come from monkeys. We're told that we're accidents. You are an accident, your government tells you. Many people running for office tell you, you're an accident, you're nothing. You're the product of random evolutionary chance. You're nothing. Live with that. Is the message of the culture. So I'm here to tell you in no uncertain terms that you are of immeasurable value to God. You're the prize that the Father ordained since eternity past, that the, the, the precious present that the Father has given. It's not the hippopotamuses that the Father has given to the Son. I mean, it's true, all creation is His. But you're the prize. That's what all of this theology is pointing towards. In these verses, don't miss that. Act like it. You're of great value to God. Act like it. Don't act like a beast of the field the way the culture teaches you to act or think. No, no, no. You are of inestimable value to the God of the universe. This is what we are seeing in this deep theology and what we will see as the morning unfolds. The first theological truth is that God chooses, that God selects, that God predestines, that God elects and you say well no 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 wait a second there's free will i agree we'll get to that but first we get to the first point here that god elects in eternity past the father chose whom he would give as the prize as the gift to jesus ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4 read like this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. The Greek word there for choose is eklegamai, and it means what it sounds like in the English. It means to choose. It means to select. Right? Don't be embarrassed about this. Don't get squeamish about this. Some people approach the doctrine of election like, "Eh, we got to soften that somehow. We we got to change that word. It means what it means. It means to select. It means to choose. And God didn't put this doctrine in the Scripture to discourage us. He put it in the Scripture so you would know how valuable you are to Him. how much you matter to Him. In 2 Thessalonians, this same writer of the Scripture, the Apostle Paul, uses a different word for choosing. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. This is not the Greek word eklegamai, like in Ephesians 1, which we just saw. This is the Greek word aireo, which means to choose or to take for oneself. And the basis for the Father's choice is His foreknowledge. The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 1, 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Here, this apostle, the apostle Peter, uses the Greek word eklektas, which is the adjective form of that verb eklegomai. Paul uses eklegomai, Ephesians 1. Here, the apostle Peter uses eklektas, which is it's just a cousin. It's a cousin word. This is the adjective form of the same word, and it means chosen. But Peter says that believers are chosen according to or consistent with the Father's foreknowledge. Now, when the Scripture talks of knowing someone, it doesn't mean knowing information, knowing data about someone or something. It means intimacy. It means love. Right? I'm going to be delicate how I say this, but in the Hebrew Scriptures, when a husband knows his wife, it uses the Hebrew word yada, to know It's not talking about knowing data. It's talking about intimacy between a husband and a wife. Peter is saying that we are chosen based on God's foreknowledge. And knowing someone is about intimacy. It has the idea of love and affection. God loved you before he made you. God loved you before he made the planet. God loved you since eternity past. The scripture says that God foreknew believers. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In eternity past, God knew everything about us. He loved us. He cared for us. He provided for us, which is to say he foreknew us. Of course, part of him knowing us was that he knew that we would believe in his son. I want to I be careful the way I say this. Part of foreknowledge means that it, it includes knowing everything about us, but it also is the concept of intimacy and love and affection. And so because God is omniscient, and foreknowledge is part of his omniscience, he knew that we would believe in Jesus. And you say, well, there it is. He looked down the corridors of time, and he saw that I would trust in Jesus. He saw that I would choose him, so he chose me because I was going to choose him. No. That's not what's happening in foreknowledge. Now, it's true that foreknowledge, that that his knowledge, that we would believe in Christ, that's part of foreknowledge. But there's a lot more in foreknowledge. Foreknowledge has all of it. You see, when you think of God, don't think the way we think, which is difficult to do. We're finite creatures, right? We learn things. When we were five years old, we knew this much. And now that we're 50, we know that much. Right? Or you're 80, you know that much we learn things God doesn't learn anything his omniscience means that he knows all the knowable all the actual all the potential the potential part is the part that makes my brain hurt I mean it's 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 amazing enough that he knows everything all the time and he's always known it it's instantaneous knowledge forever he doesn't learn anything because he's always known everything all the knowable whether that is actual or potential and so that's baked into the concept of foreknowledge but foreknowledge also has the idea of intimacy and knowledge and caring for and love which he did for believers before the foundation of the world the father not only elected and foreknew the ones that he would give to jesus he also predestined them choose he chose which is election he foreknew And now we're talking about predestination. Predestination 
is what Jesus is referring to. When Jesus says in, in, in our passage in chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Absolute certainty. Everyone that the Father gives to Jesus, or to use the theological term, everyone who is elected absolutely, positively, without a doubt, will believe in Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1, 5 and verse 11. In love, He, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Also, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purposes, who, His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. The will of the Father is unstoppable. It, it, it can't be thwarted. And so the Apostle Paul says here that it is the Father's will, it was and is the Father's will to predestine us to be His adopted children. We're adopted because we're born rebels. We're born sinners. We're born the enemies of God under His fierce vengeance and wrath. And so then we're adopted in Christ. And so it's the Father's will. The Father predestined us to adoption as His children to receive an inheritance in Christ and nothing can prevent that. Nothing will thwart the Father's will. In Romans chapter 8, Paul wraps these doctrines together. He wraps the doctrines of election and foreknowledge and predestinations, predestination together, and then he adds two more. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That's the verse, right? I mean, people quote that. All things work together for good. Mm, not so fast. Don't dive into the scripture and take out three words, five words and say, here's my verse for the day. That's not how scripture reading works. Things are in context. So you don't take things out of context. Paul is not saying all things work together for good. He says all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, that's election, according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew there's foreknowledge he also predestined to begun to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren verse 30 and these whom he predestined he also called and these whom he called he also justified there's a new doctrine and these whom he justified he also glorified so election foreknowledge and predestination lead to justification and glorification and justification is you being declared that which you are not. You are not righteous, nor am I. But God in His great mercy declares us righteous, imputes to us, transfers to us the righteousness of Christ. Though we are wicked by nature, rebels by nature, God in His great love, when we trust in Christ, he transfers to us Christ's righteousness, which is to say we are justified. Justification. And then glorification is the resurrection. All of our bodies are wasting away. Now, if you're 19 years old in this, in this house today, you don't believe it. You think, yeah, I'm invincible. You will believe it when you're 59. Or 79. You will believe it. All of our bodies are wasting away. Just take out a picture when you were, your high school picture, you know, when you were 16 in the yearbook and go look at yourself now and you say, eh, eh, eh. there's a difference because our bodies are wasting away. It's a product of sin. It's a product of, of the fall. Glorification is the resurrection. If there is no resurrection... If the end is your body is worm food, then let's go home. Let's shut this place down and let's go do something else on Sunday mornings because it's ridiculous. We're wasting our time. 
if the end is we are worm food. The resurrection is essential to the Christian message. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a joke. Jesus is a joke. The doctrines that are presented in the Word of God are a joke. If our end is dust. This is why Jesus speaks of in our passage, John chapter 6, raising them on the last day. Because your destiny is not to feed the insects of the world, of the earth. Your destiny is to glorify God in His eternal kingdom. And He will take your body and my body, which are wasting away. And if the Lord tarries, if the Lord doesn't come back before our deaths, our bodies will either be cremated or be put into the ground. But then they will be reconstituted. 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, the passage says. That's the comfort. But the end is not death. The end is glorification. So we see here in Romans chapter 8, the apostle weave all these things together. All these things that are part of God's plan, but none of this. None of these things that are totally God's province, election, foreknowledge, predestination, justification, glorification, that's all God's business. That is the exclusive jurisdiction of God. But then you see free will in the same verse. Look closely in Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 28, where do you see it? It's on the screen there. Where do you see free will? And none of this happens but for loving God. To those who love God, it says. Well, guess what? Love is a choice. Please never believe this deceptive lie from the pit of hell. That I just love who I want to love. That love just happens. The heart wants what the heart wants. You cheated on your spouse. Hey, I I, I just fell in love with that person. Hogwash. You're an adulterer. You wanted to commit adultery and you did it. It's a way of rationalizing what we want to do. The heart wants what the heart wants. That's a lie. Love is a choice. It's always a choice. And that's why the scripture commands us to love God. Because it's a choice. What does it say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your might, with your whole person, with your intellect, with your emotions, with your body, everything. It's a choice. That's why we're commanded. If it wasn't a choice, we wouldn't be commanded to do it because it would just happen. The heart wants what the heart wants. No, you want what you want, and I want what I want. Love is a choice. And so we're seeing a choice here in Romans 8, 28, a choice that we make, not a choice that God makes. At the beginning of the long list of doctrines in Romans 8 here on the screen is our choice to love God or to not love God. Trusting in Christ is our choice to love God because the free will of humanity and the sovereignty of God, both coexist. They both coexist. Although God predestines the elect unto glory, the opposite is not true. God does not predestine anyone to condemnation. God does not predestine anyone to hell. God does not predestine anyone to damnation. In fact, He wants all to be saved. He wants none to be lost. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, 
He's not slow about his, his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God wants everyone to come to salvation. Remember the way Jesus creates the parallel, parallelism. Coming to me is the same as believing in me. 1 Timothy 2.4, here God, it, it says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth intimacy with God God desires none to be lost but as God's image bearers we have volition we have free will so we have a responsibility to exercise faith that's why Jesus said in John 6 37 and 6 40 our passage that's why he said eternal life is given to the one who believes in me it's given to the one who comes to me the ones who are chosen are the ones who use their free will to believe. It's like this. You say, am I chosen? I ask you, have you, had, have you exercised faith in Christ? You say, yes, then you're chosen. And everybody has until the end of their life to exercise faith in, in Christ. You believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. And then you look at your back and say, oh, hey, it's this chosen back there. After you've walked through the door of faith, then you see it on, the, on, on your back. It's kind of like that. Chosen, but free. Both sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity. From God's perspective, he sovereignly controls everything. And from our perspective, we are responsible to believe. The reason, let's just be clear about this. The reason people are not saved is because they are unwilling. This is an issue of the will. The reason people reject Christ is not because they don't understand it. You know, they've heard about Jesus. It's an issue of the will. It's a moral decision. Jesus put it this way in John 5, 39, which we've seen in our study. You search the Scriptures. Remember, he's, he's speaking to unbelievers. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me. In other words, you're unwilling to believe in me. Not believe that I'm standing before you when he was talking to the Pharisees, but trust in me as the access to God. You're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Matthew 22, verses 2 and 3. The kingdom of heaven, this is, this is the parable that Jesus told about the kingdom of heaven being like a marriage feast. And, and before I read this, the scripture often describes the kingdom as a banquet in the Old Testament and the New Testament. People want to portray God as some sort of killjoy. Ah, oh, you're going to church. You read the Bible? What is wrong with you? Come on, man. Let's have fun. Let's rock it on, baby. That kind of stuff. They portray God as a killjoy. And so some in Christianity think, yeah, we're supposed to be sour and, and, and dour. And... No, 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 no. God invented celebration. And guess what's going to be for eternity? Celebration. That's why the kingdom is described as a banquet, as a party, or in this case, in the parable here, as a wedding feast. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling, unwilling to come. Salvation is an issue of the will. It's a moral decision to reject Christ. That's why there are moral consequences, eternal punishment in the lake of fire, the vengeance of God forever. And then that parable goes on in, in the, the description of, of the king who, in, here in Matthew 22, who, who sent out the invitations and the, the invitees didn't come. Then he says, he tells his slaves, you go, you go to the road and you just invite whoever. Invite those who were not invited to the banquet. And then they do come because they are willing. Or then that painful verse, Matthew 23, verse 37, where Jesus said, as he's looking at Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. In the end, salvation is always about the will. God wants all to be saved, but not all are saved. And that is a product of the will because not all choose to, say, to be saved. All are savable, but the only ones who are saved are those who are willing. These are the same ones that God has chosen, predestined, and foreknown. These are the ones whom Jesus speaks of in John chapter 6 as being the Father's gift to Him. The Father's gift that God the Father gives to God the Son. So Jesus is unpacking all of this for us. The ones who are willing to accept Jesus, who trust in Him, these are the ones whom the Father has willed that Jesus preserve, that He raise on the last day, and that He give eternal life to. The Father has entrusted your eternal destiny to Jesus. That's why Jesus' ability and His willingness to perform is essential. That's what Jesus is showing the crowds. Let me show you that I'm able to do that which Messiah was prophesied to do. Let me show you through my miracles, through my words, through my works, Jesus says to the crowd that I am able to do the Father's will. Jesus' obedience to the Father is essential. In fact, Jesus being fully God and fully man is essential to our salvation. It means that Jesus knows the Father's will perfectly. It means that Jesus has the power, the limitless power, to fulfill the Father's will perfectly. It means that Jesus loves us with the same eternal intensity that does the Father. The reason the Scriptures are dedicated to the revealing of the person of Jesus is because everything hinges on that. Everything hinges and depends on Him. Your salvation, your resurrection, your eternal life in the kingdom of God. The eternal kingdom of God. Your salvation, your resurrection, and your eternal life. What else is there? Other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? I mean, there's nothing else of greater significance. I'm not saying that the things of the world are irrelevant, right? I mean, you, you need money. You need money to pay your bills. I mean, you want to have good health, right? You need food. You need, I'm not saying the things of the world are insignificant. They're, they're real. They're significant. It's just when you compare them to our salvation, to our resurrection, and to our eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, they pale in significance. Because those are forever things. You eat a nice meal, and then it's done. Your body digests it, and it's done. But the bread of heaven is a person. And the bread of heaven is the one who is standing before the crowd teaching them, and the one that we are being taught about here in this text. Jesus' words and Jesus' works evidence that he was and is ready, willing, and able to do the Father's will. He already did the Father's will when he was here on the planet. He is doing the Father's will as he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, and he will complete the Father's will when he sets his feet on this planet the final time. Soon. Soon. This is what we are being taught in the Gospel of John chapter 6. If there's anyone here today without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, we want you to know that God loves you even though you are the enemy of God. You are subject to His fierce wrath. You are worthy of His vengeance forever. You say, I don't like that. It's just the way it is. It's just the Scripture. It's the Word of God. It's the truth. You are the enemy of God. Under His wrath, yet He loves you. 
He loves you with a love that will not let you go. He loves you as you are, and He loves you so much to not leave you as you are. This is why He spared not His only begotten Son for you. This is how valuable you are to God, that He came as a man lower than angels for you because you matter to Him. Because you had no way out of the slave market of sin. Because you're in it as a sinner. And there is this great gulf between you and God. This barrier that cannot be crossed by you. So God came as a man to pay for your sins. Jesus is the one who died for our sins according to the scriptures. Was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And you must trust in him. There is no other access to God. There is no other access to heaven. Muhammad is not the access. Buddha is not the access. Politics are not the access. Atheism is not the access. Your university degree is not the access. There is but one door, and that door is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, come. Come. Come to me. Black, white, tall, short, rich, poor. Come. Come. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day of mercy. You don't deserve God's mercy. You deserve his vengeance, as do I, because you're a sinner, as am I, a rebel by nature, not in a cool way, but in a way that deserves his damnation of you forever. And yet in his great love, he offers you a way out. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Now one more topic before we close today. We have an election coming up. I'm not talking about the doctrine of election. We have an election coming up in our nation and in our state. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a responsibility to vote. As a citizen, you have a responsibility to vote. And make no mistake, you will give an account to God how you vote. Or even if you fail to vote, you will give an account to God for that. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. But I am going to tell you about biblical principles. You should vote for somebody who supports biblical principles. Here's why. There are plenty of candidates that promote evil, wickedness, abominations, things that the Scripture describes as abomination. There are plenty of candidates that support that, be they males or females. Don't support that candidate. Why? Because it used to be the lever, but whatever technology we're using now for the voting, when you cast that ballot for that candidate, now it's on you. Now the wickedness that that candidate is going to foist on the nation or the state, you own it. And you've supported the wickedness when you vote for that candidate. So be very careful. Support and vote for a candidate. Don't give your money. Don't give your vote to a candidate who supports that which is in contravention to biblical principles because if you do, you will give an account to God for that. And the flip side is true also. Right? Voting for a candidate who promotes biblical principles. Well, guess what? You own that. We don't live in a country like China where they're, they're, they're not elected officials, their officials are put in place by an oligarchy. No, we pick them. And that's why an election is very important. Go vote. But vote for the candidate who will support biblical principles. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you because you're an awesome God, a God to be feared, a God to be loved. We approach you in awe and wonder. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We recognize that we deserve your wrath and yet we receive your grace. We praise you for that. We praise you that you have recorded your word and memorialized it and preserved it that we may bask in it, that we may be edified by it. We thank you for these things. We pray for the election that is coming up. We ask that you give us leaders 
that seek your ways, that will promote your truth. We ask for leaders of courage. We ask that you restrain the wicked leaders that we have. Foist, prevent them from foisting their evil upon us. Restrain them, please, Father. And we ask that you promote the godly leaders that we have, that your ways may be the way of this nation, of our state, of our region. And yet we put all of this in your hands. We recognize that you are sovereign. You are the God of the universe. And so we rely on you for everything. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of kings, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.